happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. Welcome to the EdTech Situation Room, episode 210 for February the 24th, 2021. My name is Wes Fryer. I am the innovation specialist. I always, man, you'd think I'd know this. I have a cool title. <laughs> Somebody made it up. Um, I'm uh, an innovation and technology integration specialist. That's it. At the Cassie School here in Oklahoma City, where it hit 72 degrees uh, yesterday, and we do not have any more ice on our lake. Joining me, as always, is Dr. Jason Neifer, who probably didn't see 72 degrees today in Missoula. How is there snow still on the ground for you, sir? Uh, there is still snow on the ground, but the reason why I'm chuckling is because we had some warmer weather today, too, but it got up to a balmy 37, So, and it was sunny, which meant that um, there had been a little bit of frost on my on my sidewalk that I thought I was going to go have to add some ice melt to uh, to make sure it wasn't slick for our uh, delivery folk, but... Um, Sadly, um, we did not hit the 70s today. And I know I have family in Texas that had been reporting that, uh, they, they saw zero and 78 in the same 48 hours. Uh, so yeah, I don't really understand that. I can't wrap my brain around that one. Although I do remember once growing up here in Montana, which by the way, I'm Jason Neifer. I'm the assistant director of the Montana Digital Academy, Montana State Virtual School, located in the University of Montana campus here in Missoula, Montana. But, you can't, ever, you can't even tell that he's a debater, ladies and gentlemen. No, you can't. never, ever guess that. <laughs> no, you, can, you really can't. But I do remember that there was a really late spring snow when I was uh, probably a senior in high school where it dumped snow for <laughs> for like 48 hours. And then the weather quickly shifted, and it was suddenly 68 degrees, and we had like two feet of snow on the ground. And it quickly turned into a massive like snow bog um, in Great Falls, the city that I grew up in. So, but Wes, I'd love to talk about the weather for the next hour, but I don't think that's our agenda. What is the EdTech Situation Room? Well, Jason and I are here to talk about the past week's tech news. And tonight, if you want to visit our document, as always, on edtechsr.com slash links, you'll find the links for episode 210. Uh, we've got some breaking news. We have connectivity articles, Google News, Apple News, Microsoft News. And then these are always fun to try to categorize. So we have social media, privacy, and security, which can kind of run together a bit, the tech correction, and a number of miscellaneous articles, which we may not get to, but we probably will get to at least a few. And the old geek of thy week uh, will wrap us up. So where shall we begin tonight's discussions, Dr. Neifer? Well, I was going to queue up our breaking news bumper, but I'm just going to have to mimic it here. Shugung, gugung, gugung, gung. Um, announced this morning, and Wes, I'm not sure if you, you know about Fry's Electronics. I've been to their Austin okay. stores many times, yes. Good. So, um, Fry's Electronics has announced that they are closing nationwide. And the reason why that I have a wisp of sadness in my eyes tonight for Fry's is that Fry's has been a really big part of my kind of computer life for the last really almost 25 years. And, uh, for those of you that have never got to experience Fry's, Fry's Electronics was an independently owned chain of um, electronic stores. And what I loved about them is that all of them were really different. They Some of them had themes. Some of them um, uh, had a lot of stock. Some of them were much smaller and the stock was, was much less. Um, but to kind of date myself with why Fry's was so important to me, um, I built my first computer from scratch. Uh, actually, my first scratch-built computer came from parts uh, that I picked up from Fry's. Um, it was my... It was the spring of my first year of teaching. I was just substituting that year. And um, no, actually, no, it was my first year of teaching, teaching. And I decided that I was going to go to Portland for spring break, which is where I spent a lot of spring breaks and, and weekend trips because a lot of my friends from high school lived in Portland. And so I literally drove up to uh, the train um, in Shelby, Montana, uh, north central Montana. I spent a day and a half getting to Portland by a train. I built a computer there. And then I turned around and took the computer um, and boarded a, a the train. It, like literally had this box, big uh, clunky desktop box. After I built it from Fry's parts at a friend's uh, uh, apartment in 
Portland and then turn around and, you know, put my feet up on it on the train on the way home. And, um, I bought my first iPad at a uh, Fry's. Um, I've bought, uh, endless, uh, uh, peripherals at Fry's. It's been a really big part of my kind of electronics life. So, um, I'm sad today that, that Fry's is closing. And if I could play the bagpipes or the fiddle, I would <laughs> be playing an appropriate what is that? A dirge to yes, commemorate the <laughs> moment. Uh, well, yes. so I used I used to go down to TCA forever. Like, and when I moved to Oklahoma, I just went cold turkey. I haven't been there for you know since two thousand and five, probably. But that was an that was a pilgrimage. So we yes. would go to oh, what's the name of Papacitos has some of the best. Um, fajitas of a chain that I've ever found. So we'd have to hit Papacitos and we'd have to go to Fry's. And yeah, we're talking about just mega, mega tech land. I, I think maybe I've been to the to one of the ones in Dallas and, and maybe Plano or something like that as well. But it, um, hmm, interesting. Sign of the times. Sign of it, the times. It is. I, I make a couple other quick comments about uh, the, the death of Fry's because I, I think that uh, it's easy to blame it on the pandemic, but Fry's was actually in trouble uh, well before the pandemic hit in, in 2020. And I'm, I was trying to figure out when's the last time I visited a Fry's. I'm guessing it was two years ago. Um, and I've been to, I've probably been to four or five of them, uh, uh, maybe more. Uh, Seattle and Portland were the two that I frequented the most. I also have hit two or three of them in, in Silicon Valley, the kind of broader San Jose area. But, um, the articles talk about the fact that, that a lot of it was composition, a competition from Amazon in places like Best Buy. But to be frank, if I had availability of a fries in my town for like nerdy electronic stuff, I'd much rather go and pick it up at the store. I think that buy buy it from Amazon in part because you know if it's a Saturday project and you're putting together a um, a computer, then um, you know it's better to pick up the parts you know when you're building the computer and then be able to take them back if it doesn't work out for whatever reason. Um, I hear a rumor, Wes, that you're not a cat. Um, the um, and then they talked about how that that two years ago they started experiencing some financial troubles. And one of the ways they dealt with that was basically uh, uh, becoming a consignment store where they would make deals with uh, manufacturers of computers and electronic parts. And um, they put them on the shelves and then wouldn't pay the manufacturer until after they sold the part itself. And um, I had heard that, that stores were starting to have uh, large aisles of empty shelves. This was well before um, uh, the pandemic hit, and that became a real, real issue as well. So, again, rest in peace, fries. Uh, you've provided a lot of delight to the masses, and um, you know I'm excited to see uh, you know uh, other people's stories of, of how, what fries has meant to them. So, yeah, absolutely. Man, I you're still. What are you on? You're are you still on your Windows PC? I've not been able to find a good virtual background app for uh, that I can use here with with Streamyard. So, yeah, I am still on my PC. Um, just a kind of a, a minor update there. I finally got a docking station that allows me to run uh, both a 4K monitor and my side monitor. Uh, it was uh, I I found it's 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 a three hundred dollar docking station, but I found a used one for for about seventy five bucks on eBay. So uh, I I picked that up and I'm using it now. The lack of Google Drive on my MacBook M1 is uh, is still a problem for me to use it as a primary workstation at work. Um, but this leads us into a couple quick Mac articles I wanted to share. Uh, there's a really interesting article from the Linus Tech Tip forums, and for those of you that are not uh, uh, a, uh, schooled in Linus Tech Tips. It's a, it's a popular YouTube channel, uh, that, that does reviews of technology. And it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's pretty high, high geekdom, but there was a post and now it's been picked up by other mainstream news media outlets talking about how a lot of M1 Mac owners are running into interesting issues because their SSD is, uh, uh getting up used much more quickly, uh, than it would be on a previous Intel Mac. And for those unaware, SSD drives, this has never happened to me personally, but SD, SSD drives have a shelf layer, a use life to them. You could only do 
uh, X number of reads and writes on an SSD drive before it fails. And I did see this at a criticism um, of the new integrated um, uh, uh, storage on the M1 Max because you can't pull the drive out and then put a new drive in. It's all integrated into the motherboard. And there's apparently some commands you can run that will show you the number of times uh, that, that the drive is overwriting certain sectors on the hard drive. And the idea here is that, you know, if this happens, if you're a heavy user of the machine and it's it's reading and writing too much, then it would have a much, much, much lower lifespan than it would otherwise. And... Um, a lot of tech folks are, are speculating that one of the benefits of the integrated systems, the memory and the storage is integrated directly on the motherboard, not with third party parts, is that you can utilize what's referred to as swap, which is taking stuff in memory, RAM, the working memory of a computer, and then writing it to a hard drive. But since it's so fast because it's integrated that that it can keep really heavy speed, um, but it would have to write to the drive a lot. So I would call this an ongoing story. Um, and obviously, um, you know, if, if, if hard drives fail within, you know, six months of buying an, a Mac M1, Apple's going to have to do something about that or they will cease to exist as a company. So, um, I'm sure there's a solution on, on the way. Yeah, that is crazy. I, I had to give mine up. I was able to, to test drive for maybe three weeks or so an M1 Mac and really did enjoy it. I mean, I'm back to uh, a year and a half, two year old MacBook Pro with touch bar. And honestly, I don't, I'm not seeing a huge difference, but for an $800 machine, which is what, you know, you're able to buy those 128 gig uh, M1 MacBook Airs for it is a tremendous, tremendous machine. And I will say also that just needing to, to be agile like that, man, having everything in Google Drive and then also an iCloud drive. Um, my son, you know, a couple of years ago, I guess, on a visit had, had just happened to show me or something or something on his phone where he had it on iCloud. It was from his computer. I was like, what's that? Cause I had not, I, I have Google Drive. Why would I want iCloud Drive? But being able to have that turned on and, you know, we stepped up to whatever the two terabits for the family uh, and we're not even, you know, using maybe even a third of that. But it is phenomenal and it just definitely makes the the switching back and forth between devices uh, fantastic. But I would expect Apple to address that in some way because that is not <laughs> not going to not going to fly with Mac users, as you said. Yep, and absolutely. Then you dropped the malware article in there, too. This is a pretty significant uh, Apple article. Yeah, uh, Ars Technica reported on February 20, February 20th, excuse me, that there has been, this is the second time a piece of malware has been found that is built natively for M1 Max. And, uh, we had an article on this a couple of weeks ago that I don't think we got to. And it's sad because I wanted to make this joke. I, I stole this from Paul Therott. Um, which it was pretty funny, but the, the first, uh, uh, discovery of M1 Mac native malware, it, it was two or three weeks ago. And Paul Throck made the comment on Twitter that, but Mac users are reporting that it's really speedy and fast on, on the new M1. And I thought that was a pretty, uh, a pretty, pretty funny comment. But the reason why this particular, uh, uh, malware is concerning is because there uh, are 30,000 Macs confirmed that have this new malware. Uh, M1 Macs that have this new malware, but it doesn't really seem to do anything. It checks in with a server um, every hour to see if there's new instructions, but there doesn't seem to be a payload associated with it, or at least there's not one that's integrated into the system itself. And so, I mean, I, I've never, I mean, I, I, I don't really run third-party antivirus on PCs. Um, Wes, I think we've talked about this in the past. Do you run anything on your Macs? No, we, and then as a school desisted from everything except Windows Defender on, on, uh, Windows 10 systems. Uh, and no, we, we, we had Kaspersky for quite a while, but it just really hasn't seemed to be necessary. And there's a trade off always when you run these third party systems, especially with low level access and scans and everything. So no, we, we haven't done that at school for quite a while. And I don't do any of that personally anymore. There were, there was, we, I did have a license for something for a while that we did it on, on, at home, but it's been more than two to three years since we stopped, I think. Yep. Well, and the thing that I keep thinking about personally is that while I'm, I am super interested in, um, uh, super interested in, 
you know, obviously staying safe on the Mac. And I, I've probably had maybe two, uh, uh, one and a half I- infections in my, you know, 25, 30 years of computer use. Um, because I, I am super careful, right? And, and, and it's something that, that I'm, I'm at least proactive about, if not paranoid. But, um, you know, uh, Macs are not immune to malware. They're a lot less likely to get it, um, because there are less developers for it. Although as more Macs come on the scene, that will certainly impact things. Um, but just an interesting phenomenon that M1 Macs are now getting targeted. And Peggy is in our our uh, chat room. Hello, Peggy. And she's asking the question, how would you get that malware? The articles that I've read didn't indicate how people yep. did get it. And I'm pretty sure they would have said that if they knew. So it really is an uh, another evolving case. And it's something that uh, I don't know if you, if you had mentioned this, but it it includes a self-destruct feature. So not only is it specifically made for M1 Max and they don't know that these, the, the, the malware is phoning home. So it's making a connection to um, a command computer somewhere. They don't know for sure what that will do. Uh, and they also don't know it, it has a self-destruct feature that's really advanced for that kind of malware. So this, this could be very sophisticated nation state sponsored software. Um, and there's not any indication in the articles that I've read. I, Jason put the Ars Technica piece in there. So I didn't put another one. I read on another site the same article and it doesn't indicate how you get it, which is also a little bit troubling. So, and, and, or a way that you could find out if you have it. So are we among? Uh, the 30,000 that have it, I don't know. So I cert, I certainly, uh, don't know. So I may, I may check on that tomorrow. And, um, I, uh, well, and, and I'm not using it as a production machine yet. It's, it's mostly a, a curiosity, uh, more than anything else to me. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, hey, uh, how about some Google news? Um, we covered uh, a bit last week about the Learn with Google 2021 event. And um, actually, Peggy, thanks to her Nuzzle newsletter, which I uh, receive daily, um, had shared a really great summary post that Eric Kurtz, uh, who's from Ohio. And if you don't follow Eric Kurtz, just drop everything right now. Follow him on Twitter. His website, Control-Alt-Achieve. Um, I'll drop this into the chat. Um, Eric wrote a wonderful summary post of these changes. <clears throat> I have almost, well, I've seen a little over an hour of the hour and a half, you know, presentation that they gave last week. Um, and the thing that I'm most interested in, and I've got a link to this. I, I don't think I'll drop this into the chat right now because it's a video, but we'll put it in the show notes. At 46 minutes and eight seconds into the presentation, they talk about how um, rostering by the central IT office or the central administration of, of your school district, and then also a, a learning management system grade books, book sync are features that are coming. Um, there's a lot of really, really good announcements in this. Um, as we talked about last week, and I think we titled the, the episode last week, uh, Google Education Pivots, you know, it's, they, they went from something like 30 or 40 million users to 150 million users in a year. Um, and they are substantially, um, pivoting to a paid model for the advanced features. Still, you can get, all the free features that we've had, but there's a whole lot of new features, especially features that are great for remote learning um, and security and other things that you're going to need to pay for. So those are summarized really well in that Eric Kurtz article. And, um, you know, the more that I've heard about this and and the more that I see, you know, the more that I like. Um, some of them are small things. Uh, in forms, there's always been an issue where, you know, if you leave that form and come back or whatever, it doesn't save. And, you know, that's being addressed. Some of these things are going to be addressed soon. Some have already been done. Um, but, you know, I'm uh, I'm very pleased with everything that, that I've seen. And there are some really compelling uh, stories told through video in that presentation. I really it's, it's it is like an Apple event. Right. We have these different events that, that Apple does where they'll tell their story and they'll talk about their products. Google's doing that, too. And, and both of them are doing it really well you know, through video and Google intersperses different product managers and, and folks rep, you know, representing different parts of the Google product 
universe with these stories of here in Italy, here's how we responded here in Kenya. Here's how we responded here in, um, you know, uh, Colombia. And I actually thought it was cool too, that they left the language in the native language and just did English subtitles, which is interesting. I mean, this is for an English audience, but anyway, very well done. Um, and my, my overall is pretty positive as I continue to process this, but it's a ton of information and updates from Google to, to try and process. Do you have any new thoughts on all of this, Dr. Neifer? Um, I do. I did end up in some discussions about the 100 terabyte storage limit that will now be put in place. And I know that Eric's article goes into some some detail about that. And a reminder from last week, it's 100 terabytes um, per school. And the I, I, I was I was peripheral to some discussions last week from some schools in Montana that that had kind of hit the panic button on that one a little bit because they felt that 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 really limited the um, the um, the usefulness of of the free tier of, of Google. But as it turns out, I most of the people I know that did run a check on their storage use were using dramatically less than 100 terabytes. And I'll give you an example from from my own uh, organization. I did run a storage report um, at uh, uh, our, our state virtual school, and our, our Google domain has been up now for, well, it would be 11 years this March. And so it's it's been going a long time. And, uh, you know, the other thing that I would also note is that, you know, not during that entire time have we had Google Drive. So storage hasn't always been taken up, but of the 100 terabytes we have available to us, uh, which, by the way, doesn't take uh, uh, that limit doesn't take place until next summer that's July 2022 um, the the fact of the matter is is that uh, we're only using 17 terabytes out of a hundred and we have one user that's using 16 uh, uh, terabytes and that's me because I have a bunch of weekly backups of courses because I am a backup hoarder that I could probably delete 99% of with zero implication to my organization. And the only reason why I didn't do so is both because of time and because there was no storage need. Um, a couple smaller schools that, that talked about uh, looking at it, there was one that had 600 users that was using two terabytes total um, uh, and, and never thought they would hit the 100 terabytes. Now, storage and, and that kind of capacity Never say never, right? Because stuff keeps getting bigger and yada, yada, yada. But I think 100 terabytes per instance is enormously generous. And, um, you know... Um, you are using T with a ter- with a, for a terabyte, right? Yeah, I mean, terabyte. Yeah. That's crazy. It's crazy. And the reality is... <laughs> excuse me. Um, I need to get my cough button uh, in place here. Uh, one moment. The reality is that's a crazy amount of storage. And... Yeah, unless there's something wrong going on, like I mean, right? Or, I, I don't know. I mean, if you're talking about a university, now that's a different ballpark. But I think we're talking about the K-12 institutions. I mean, and there are some huge, you know, K-12 institutions. Um, my friend uh, Eric is the tech director in Oklahoma City, and they're part of this large schools consortium. And Oklahoma City is a really small member of that. I mean, we have about 55,000 students, I think. But, you know, some of these huge, huge systems, Florida schools that are, that are or districts, really, that are countywide and, um, you know, New York City public, Chicago public, um, they're, they're, they're enormous. So I, I don't know. Is that going to look different for the mega comp? I would think for the mega districts, it's going to have to maybe look different because that's just – yeah, uh, enormously. Well, and my guess is Google's reached out to some of the mega districts that, that, that you're referring to. And they said, I think they said in their announcement last week that less than 2% of districts, um, were even approaching the 100 terabyte mark. And, you know, it, it also wouldn't make sense for a district like Chicago Public to, you know, spend, uh, you know, $3 a kid. That's a big chunk of money it would take. But I'm almost certain that a multinational like Google is, is cutting deals. So, oh. Oh, yeah. um, we're not going to be in a position to upgrade. We're going to stay with the free tier, at least for the time being. Um, and it's not because we, we don't value the Google service. It's because we just don't need much more than that because we have an LMS and uh, we are building most of our learning capacity in Moodle instead. But um, I, I, I think it's very positive and I love where Google with education is going. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, well, um, yeah, and I just today saw that, you know, you're going to be able to schedule the breakout rooms in advance. You're going to be able to, you know, in the, in the meet calls for, for everybody at one time, um, you're going to be able to, to turn on or off the ability for students to mute and unmute. Uh, it just reminds me a little bit of iPhone Android where it, iPhone would come out with something new and people would say, Oh, well, Android's had that forever. It's a lot like Zoom, right? Zoom yeah. is having all of these features. Um, pretty much. I mean, for, for the most part. Um, but you've got another article in there that's about another, uh, announcement that was in that. And that was the nine to five article or nine to five Google from February 17th. Chrome OS recording tool coming in March, 40 education Chromebooks set for this year. That's an astounding number of Chromebooks. As I heard this announcement today, when I heard that part of the, um, learning with Google 2021, presentation, uh, I, that reminded me of, of Apple, right? Because this happens sometimes where there'll be a great app, a great feature, and then, oh, well, guess what, folks? That's now built in. But I, I applaud Google for doing that, including built-in screencasting. Uh, Screencastify has been the go-to screencasting tool that I've really, you know, utilized with my students. But it is so important to have that capability. And, and I think that screencasting for not only teachers, but students also is just a core competency. Like all of us need to know how to screencast and, and then, you know, work on those, those skills. So yay, yay Google for that. Absolutely. And I would also say too that what I will really love about that is that, um, you know, my, my program works in context of, you know, um, upwards of 150 different schools a semester with 150 different IT directors, 150 different philosophies. Some schools refuse to allow students to in, install third-party uh, uh, plugins uh, to allow for things like screencasting. And wow. Wes, I couldn't agree more that it's a critical uh, functionality in, in, in 2021. If for no other reason, then it really does help communicate things like troubleshooting uh, components of a course. But I am absolutely convinced that, um, that there is something um, uh, uh, to Google's uh, like expansion here. I think there's a bigger picture here that goes a little bit beyond what, what we were speculating last week, where clearly Google's starting to use this as a, as a financial component of, of their larger business. But this notion that these, that the Chromebooks are slowly and surely becoming super multifunctional devices, um, I, I think is, is, is really important. And the screen capture tool, and I, I've used this, it's, it's, it's in beta right now, um, where you can turn it on with a flag and it's it's pretty good. It's not great. The the stuff from well, name your favorite Chrome plugin for screencasting. Uh, they're better, but considering it's native and it's just built right in, it's it's pretty solid. Yeah. Uh, in our chat room, uh, Peggy's commenting about Google. You know, really focusing on on education. And uh, I replied that yeah, this the Learning with Google event, which I would encourage everybody to watch. I'll I'll put the the link in the show notes again tonight for you to to check out. They um have they they they're listening really well to educators and they're responding worldwide. I mean, one of the biggest things, and no, please don't get me wrong. I I love my Apple stuff, and and please don't take away my my you know my laptop. Uh, I you know we're using Chromebooks, but I don't I don't want to give up my Mac, um, or any of my my Apple devices, but. They are, Google is so focused on what people have and recognizing that, that the smartphone, I, I did a presentation this last week for actually about 200 teachers in Albania over Zoom, which is really cool. I did a session on, uh, smartphone storytelling. But the reason I chose that as my topic is that the, the webinar, uh, hosts and, or sponsors, um, the sort of uh, professional development group that does free, free PD for Albanian teachers, um, said that, you know, the smartphone has been the connecting device. Uh, many teachers have used, maybe I already said this on the show, um, WhatsApp groups, you know, the, the kids, they, that's what they've got. They, if they have a device, they have a smartphone. So the way in which Google has extended the function to, you know, not just computers, but also smartphones, they're doing a lot for or offline, recognizing that, you know, kids can have intermittent Wi-Fi. They may not have Wi-Fi at home. They may have to go download stuff and then go back. And anyway, just the, the global reach that they have and the variety. We talk about connectivity problems here in the United States, which we do have. But, you know, there's a lot of places in, in the world where connectivity is a lot more challenging than it is more than likely in the United States community that, um, 
you know, with E-Raid and, and, and all the different things that, that we have, um, rural, rural connectivity. And that's, well, we, we've got a section on that again tonight because we talk about that frequently. But great to see Google making these responses. And, uh, it'll be interesting, Jason, as you get some more ideas and sort of senses of it. We're not, we're not seeing Google come out and say, Hey, we're pivoting, we're changing, you know, but just, just like the release of their chief education evangelist that we heard of the mountain mood was like, what's up with that? You know, um, that's, if not a harbinger, if I'm using that word, pronouncing that correct. I mean, it appears that there's more going on, which we don't exactly know what that is, but I'll, and my geek of the week, I'll I have a Google related geek of the week and I'll, I'll, uh, it's Google's a fascinating company and, and they've continued to evolve and change from, from their roots in many ways. And, and it's, it's continuing to happen, but they're profitable. They're continuing to meet tremendous need. And oh my gosh, do we have needs today for digital interactive learning in the COVID-19 world? And Hey, if it was all just a pay to play, you know, situation, there'd be lots and lots of schools that would be hurting much more than they are. And we are hurting as as a nation and a world educationally because of what we're in. Yep, absolutely. Okay, uh, where'd you well, next, sir? Actually, let's pick up the rest of the Google articles because you've got you've got some good ones there. Well, I'll I'll just real quick say that the Kevin Toffel um, post from from February nineteenth is a bit of a rant, but it's still good. Ten years of Chromebooks and people still don't know what they're capable of. Um, it's really a criticism of an article uh, that someone else wrote over on T three, um, but it's you know pointing out that there is a lot of app capability, especially via Linux, and there's ways that you can just wipe this out and you know you can even if you want to be pretty geeky you can still run windows but you know office apps and so anyway kevin is the defender of uh, of chromebooks with his about chromebooks website but then jason would you pick up the top one about supervised youtube because i had not heard of that and that sounds pretty significant yeah it, it's an app um and google uh, apparently is um is rolling out soon it's it's called supervised youtube and it's intended for older kids and teens and it's it's coming soon is the um is the the piece of information that's that's a little generic but the idea here is that um youtube kids which was a little controversial to start off with but my understanding has cleaned up dramatically in the last uh year or so as youtube figured out pretty quickly that you can't you know say this is a safe app for kids and then have it have a bunch of garbage on there that you really wouldn't want kids to see but the idea behind um uh uh uh, this this new uh, offering, supervised YouTube, is that you as a parent can set up this YouTube app, right? That's connected with yours, and, and 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 Apple really dominated the early market on this. Lately, Google has been doing a lot of great stuff on supervised accounts, on Chromebooks, and on Android phones. To the point of which uh, it's becoming very competitive, I think, with Apple's offerings. But there's really basically three levels of. Um, of, of YouTube access you can give to a kid. Uh, and they've got recommended ages here, but it's basically um, Explore, which is really, you know, when you're ready to graduate from YouTube kids. So, you know, probably less animation, less singing, and more things like how-to videos, gaming videos, music clips, news educational content, tutorials, etc. cetera. Um, and then uh, that, that's intended for viewers nine plus uh, then there's Explore More, which is uh, uh, kind of intended for um, uh, uh, kids age 13 and more. It adds live streams as a possibility and uh, a larger set of videos, so things aimed at, at a more uh, teen crowd. And then most of YouTube, which uh, basically is everything except for things that specifically age-restricted content um, and, you know, really appropriate for older teens. And parents can also manage their watch and search history. They can look at what they're watching. They can block specific videos. It's my understanding. Um, I saw another article about this uh, that said that you can also add videos to the library for kids too, but um, I didn't really understand. It was it was the other article I looked at was as generic as this one, but you know this idea of of you know just not giving open YouTube, um, and you know YouTube is really kind of what you make out of it, right? Like when you start going down a rabbit hole in YouTube, it starts delivering you more content, as we've talked about in the past, right? We've talked about this in context of 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 radical political videos, um, but. Uh, I think it's a really smart 
thing on behalf of YouTube. And I think when you can give parents more options, you know, you can always just give your kid the YouTube app, right? That's, that's a possibility here. But if you'd like more control and you want to take more proactive parenting steps, uh, to help your kid manage the extraordinary amount of information on the internet, I think this is a smart move. Peggy's pointing out, of course, teens do always find ways to get around tools that limit. They can go to friends' houses and certainly you know, that is certainly true. Um, I think the a level of this is just kind of responding to parental angst and yeah. you know, putting some stuff out there. I am really close to suggesting at school we, we did a, a parent university this past um, fall about the social dilemma that I think was really well received. And um, I, I've been wanting to do one about YouTube radicalization, which would get into a lot of issues, but just like how important it is to be checking in with our kids on the YouTubers we're following. Who are we subscribed to? Who are we watching? There's all kinds of layers. I mean, <clears throat> you may not be, you know, your kid may not be getting recruited for, for ISIS or for a white nationalist group. They may just be, you know, watching a lot of quote influencers with certain kinds of products or ordering stuff. I mean, it was a year or so ago when our daughter ordered some kind of like drink something that was from Australia from somebody that was like a body glow thing. We're like, what is this? You're going to put this in your body. And you know, there's, <clears throat> there's less boundaries today than ever. Um, and, and some of those, I mean, it's not just thinking about mental health and toxicity. I mean, there are, you know, there's all kinds of behaviors. There's things, there's products. There's, there's a, there's a lot. It's crazy. It's a wild west. And I definitely think that, you know, parents need tools and, and help with this. So I'm glad to hear that, that, that this is, they're stepping this up and, um, anyway, I may, that, that may be something we do. Obviously there's, there's all kinds of stuff going on. Um, and, and we, you know, we're just, we've been surviving as teachers <laughs> during the pandemic and, uh, you know, extra kinds of things that we might have done in the past with regard to, you know, parent education sessions and stuff. It just it hasn't had the priority this year um, that it, it might have had in the past. But I don't think it's something we should ignore. And so I'm, I'm glad to know about that. And anyway, I'll, I'll share some more if we end up doing something like that. But it's it, it, these YouTube is a vital communication platform today. And we would be, I would use the word remiss, but I just, if we as a school were not utilizing YouTube and leveraging it in powerful ways, I don't think we would be providing students with a relevant 21st century education. And I'm talking especially about middle and high school, but even our younger kids, you know, we're using those uh, safe, safe sharing websites that'll strip out, you know, related links and things like that. But there's just, I mean, look at the Mars Rover, look at Perseverance, look at the ways that NASA and JPL are, are sharing things and rocket launches and just anyway, all, all kinds of stuff, but there's, it's a tangled, it's a tangled web, you know, with a lot right. of different issues and it, we do need tools and education to try to figure out how to best navigate this. Because I don't think saying to your child, I'm not going to let you on YouTube until you're 18 and you're leaving my home is a, is a good, and, and I don't know how many parents would be actually taking it to that extreme, but we certainly do have some, um, at a middle school level that, that want to ban YouTube altogether. And we've had to have conversations about, well, we use that because of instruction and these are the safety things that we take, you know, but anyway, they're important conversations to have. Right. Well, and then I would also add that, you know, YouTube is the largest collection of video in human history. So I realize a lot of that uh, could be considered low value video, but remember there are very few museums, for example, that don't have extraordinary uh, YouTube channels. There are very few archives that don't have extraordinary YouTube channels. And in fact, I'm going to share today. It's not YouTube, but um, my geek of the week today will be about uh, a sharing archive that is digital. And I think that's the bottom line where things are going. So, yeah. All right. Well, we've got a bunch of other directions to take in about 20 more minutes. So where would you like to go next? Uh, well, let me do uh, well, the problem is every topic we have tonight is an epic rabbit hole. Um, let's do the connectivity articles uh, because they're 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 pretty timely. Uh, great article from The Verge on February 22nd. Um, Elon Musk Starlink. 
uh, is apparently going to hit 300 megabits down uh, 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 later this year. And um, it's not happening quite yet, but my parents, um, I'm sorry, my in-laws are going to be picking up uh, Starlink, I think. Uh, they're going to invest the $600 in hardware and $100 a month uh, to get that service. They currently have uh, what would be be politely described as, as not great internet. And, um, the, uh, from my understanding from, I now know four or five people that, that are accessing this in some way, shape or form is that it's the, I think their early experiment was called the better than nothing uh, plan, which is if you have no other uh, options or access, then this is better than nothing. But I just, I, I haven't seen any criticism of it yet, to be honest. And there's been a lot of, of, of videos about Starlink, but it was capped-ish at 100 megabits, although a lot of people report getting more access than that. The other thing that is also uh, um, a problem with Starlink right now, although it's not as bad as I think it comes off, is that there are latency issues, which means that the speed of which it gets to you um, not the amount it can say at once, but the speed it gets to you is slower than traditional hardwired internet, although generally faster than uh, like cell tower option internet. And way faster than the Hughes internet, the Hughes satellite stuff. If if you uh, have anybody or been familiar with the previous, you know, generations of, of satellite based um, internet. So um yeah, that is that is exciting for sure. And I think that, um, you know, the the availability of both 5G and then Starlink powered um, connectivity, it's just that's it's going to be big impact for rural communities. Let, let's just let's say that I think. Um, well, I guess 5G would only be if you get if you get it. It's more Starlink is going to have that impact. I know what I was going to say. The uh, You were talking about uh, pushback and feedback. We have some vendors actually file suit, and that may have been an article we didn't talk about in the show, but it, but it made it on the list. Try to tell, you know, like the FCC or whatever, a judge, hey, you know, uh, Starlink and Elon Musk are writing, writing checks their body can't cash kind of thing. Like there's no way they're going to be able to, you know, get to these speeds. Therefore, these grants of money that that you're you know giving them should should not be given to to um, Starlink. It needs to be given to for, to other companies to provide that service. And so this is this is a direct answer to those I think saying, hey, yeah, look at the speed that we are going to be able to achieve. We're going to be able to deliver. Now they have to also, you know, deliver in a in a wide area and at scale. But the speed stuff seems to be a good bit of news. And then another quick article. This is from CNET uh, uh, today. Uh, a reviewer picked up T-Mobile's $50 unlimited home internet service, which would go over over cell towers. And that's not a model that is that common in the United States. If you go to Europe, there's a lot of, of, of broadband providers that utilize cell tower internet to provide home internet. Uh, three in Italy, for example, is a popular cell provider. You can walk into a three-store in Italy, uh, I've done this trying to get a local SIM card when I was traveling in Italy to have a local a cell access via my, my cell phone. And uh, they'll sell you a little box that literally plugs into the uh, the electrical receptacle in your home and then you know becomes a Wi-Fi hotspot uh, so that you could access, you know, three's Internet tower based Internet. And a lot of folks use that uh, exclusively. It's not nearly as common in the United States. But T-Mobile has announced uh, this 50 home Internet service. It's pretty cheap. Um, and the reviewer, uh, you know, had minor problems with it, but otherwise it was pretty fast. Uh, it, the speed did vary throughout the day, which would be a big difference between using a cell tower internet and, uh, you know, if you were getting cable internet at home, that cable internet t- tends to stay pretty stable speed wise, whereas you're competing with other devices on T-Mobile. So if that's an interest to you, that's a great scene in article that kind of walks you through the good news, bad news of that model. The speeds in that article too are are pretty amazing, and the uh, uh, author found you know location can can make a really big difference not only within your house but of course you know where you happen to be um, you know relative to towers and things like that. But it's a very promising promising article. Uh, all right, let's talk Facebook and Australia. Um, I think we've got these articles down under the tech correction. Um, 
you put, I think, the BBC News article from February 23rd update, uh, Facebook reverses ban on news pages in Australia. I put the Facebook blog post, which I think was originally from February 17th, updated also on the 22nd. So I'll, I'll kind of try to share my summary of this and then, you know, we'll see what your, your ideas are. Basically, um, Australian legislators faced off and, and people are comparing this to like a David and Goliath, you know, kind of thing. Uh, but we've got a lot of folks who are in the traditional journalism and media world, you know, that are upset that their revenues have been cut and, uh, these companies, Facebook and Google specifically, uh, profit a great deal when they don't spend anything for the links. And so they should be paying. And so there was legislation that had been threatened that was going to require them them being Facebook and Google to pay the companies on a per link basis for everything that they shared. And, you know, that was going to generate a considerable amount of revenue, but I mean, it almost threatens the fundamental, like law, not laws, but you know, ways the internet works, which is like, yeah, you hyperlink to stuff and yeah, that's how the web works. It's not like you, you hyperlink and pay. So Google had negotiated a deal. And by the way, Rupert Murdoch, I guess, is one of the main folks as far as, and he's, you know, he owns, um, what is he, does he own, Washington Post is owned by, um, um, by Bezos now, right? Yep. But Mur- Murdoch, yep. Murdoch has got a big empire. Doesn't he own? Does he own Fox? Maybe I should know these things. Uh, yeah, I should. I think that you're right. Yes. Yeah, and then he owns a bunch of Australia. He's a he's a big media mogul, and so anyway, he's Australian, and he's a behind a lot of this. So Google kowtowed, or they they acquiesced, and they have paid. Facebook, on the other hand, bowed up their back and said no. Now I should back up. Google threatened <laughs> to shut down their search service and, and everything in Australia when they like have 98% of the search market there. Um, but after those threats, evidently there was some deals and they, they signed some things with companies where money is exchanging hands. Google is, is paying. And so Google's kind of stepped out, but Facebook bowed up their back and said, no, uh, we're just going to stop all of your links news organizations in Australia from working. And then there were all these different issues that happened where, um, you know, companies were flagged as news agencies, which weren't. And, and anyway, and then there was a shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. And, and now Facebook says, Hey, we've reached an agreement and we think Australia is going to, is going to be reasonable. So that sounds like the legislation isn't going to happen. Um, that's about the extent of my perceptions of what's going on. So can you clarify that for that? that for us further, sir. Yeah, well, uh, the, my understanding of, of the situation, too, is that that uh, Facebook, it looks like they kind of were trying to make a point, but also they didn't want to be compelled to pay for links to news that were posted by the news folks themselves. Like, they, they, they didn't want to basically be forced to pay for things that they weren't in charge of, 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 of actually delivering via the platform. And apparently they've worked something out. And the other thing they talked about, which I know this seems kind of seems like a smokescreen was that they also wanted to be able to focus on local and independent providers and not just big national providers. So I don't really understand how this works yet either, other than to say, I think the story continues. And it's complicated, right? Like that, that uh, as people figure out what the broader tech correction is going to look like, um, there things are going to, things are going to be cloudy for, for a long time to come. And as we've discussed dozens of times um, on this podcast, at, at some point we got to figure this out, but there's going to be no clear solution. What about the CNN business article uh, you put in the World Wide Web as we know it may be ending? There's a little bit of uh, a clickbaity uh, tech correction headline for you. Terrible headline, but also not that inaccurate. Uh, so CNN business reports today, uh, they talk about the increasing problem with different internets um, around the world. And um, they mention the Australia issue as as kind of a, a introduction to it, but um, the idea here is that as time is moving on, the idea of the Internet, which was a, a, a generic wire that was neutral, that uh, everyone had access to and that everyone's content and bits could be equally accessed everywhere on the network. 
that idea is 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 slowly dying uh, because of both global events and also some of the fights we've talked about here in the past. And um, the the fractured internet is sometimes the way this is is referred to. Um, you know, the idea that the internet looks different in China than it does uh, in, in most most of the West. The idea that Russia seems to be building a shadow internet um, that would be a, a place that that Russians could be uh, uh, directed to with with little or no access to the outside world. Iran uh, is known for having a lot of internal properties that that are only accessible internally, but also people are redirected there um, on a frequent basis. Um, that uh, obviously we've talked about in the past how that's concerning in part because if we can have segregated internets like this, there's no reason why we couldn't also do that in like even inside a country where we could create tiers of internet that that end up costing people and uh, get rid of the notion of of the democratizing or at least the freeing of information that comes with the internet. But uh, this particular uh, uh, author, this is uh, 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 Rishi Iyengar. Uh, talks about this, uh, uh, notion. It, uh, uh, he calls it the splinter net, uh, is, is one of the terms he used. But there is, there is, there's a reckoning that seems to be coming. And at some point, there may be multiple and even competing networks that, that refer to themselves as the internet. And we've talked about this on the show. I mean, we've, we've, you know, the Huawei, like, was it C, CFO? I mean, is still, I, I'll, uh, there's a quick article I'll do from the Winnipeg News, um, that actually, uh, referenced that. Let's see. I have this under miscellaneous. Chinese ambassador denounces pending vote by Canadian MPs on Uyghur genocide from the Winnipeg Free Press on February 20th. I put that in because, <clears throat> you know, China, um, is, is the surveillance state. I mean, in, in Western China, uh, the, the Uyghur Muslim minority is subjected to a level of, um, not just content filtering, but monitoring that is just, you know, over the top. Um, and it, you know, the, that is a, a just a horrific example of how te- technology can be used to oppress and suppress an entire, you know, basically, well, it's like a province, I guess, but it's, it's the size of a nation. So anyway, it is, uh, it's bad. Um, we've talked about on the show is in terms of China and U S relations, the conflicts over, um, standards and the deployment of 5g and network gear and how, you know, the United States has certainly under the Trump administration. And it's going to be interesting, interesting to see if this shifts at all under Biden was, you know, pushing countries to absolutely reject Chinese technology and install, you know, U.S. or European router systems. And, you know, this question of are we going to have at the router and network infrastructure levels a a different Internet and a fractured Internet? So uh, we continue to see authoritarian regimes, um, you know, Saudi Arabia. um, We mentioned Iran. a, a lot in the Middle East, um, you know, the Soviet Union, uh, should I say Soviet Union, Russia, um, China, you know, different, different countries that are, you know, they have a lot of problems with a free and open internet and they're doing a lot of, they're, they're utilizing the tools of centralized control, um, which I think we're just, it, it's kind of the trajectory of IT is that, you know, these, these tools get more and more powerful, but the, 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 the tools at the disposal of your <clears throat> of your admins can get even more powerful as well. Uh, we see that manifested in some different ways here in the United States. For instance, we've talked about quotas on connectivity and, you know, you know, being charged for for landline, you know, consumption of Internet, which is not something that we've typically had in the United States. We've had that with cellular, but not with landline. So anyway, that's a lot to just kind of throw out there. But it's it's a mess. And it is. We're not. um we're, we're, we're not seeing, I don't think, the, the championing at a national level of the open and free Internet that's going to bring us closer together as a globe and, and as a planet. Um, and, and I think we need that. And I don't I don't know. Uh, I don't know how we how we change this trajectory, because we're certainly we're, we are fractured and we seem to be moving further towards that vision, unfortunately. Yep, Absolutely. Well, Wes, it looks like we are quickly coming to the top of the hour. Is there anything else you want to get in this week in our list? 
Oh, well, let's see. Uh, here's a couple just fast ones. So this is kind of fun. Um, this is a biotech article. Uh, this is from fizz.org on February 23rd. It's titled Researchers Invent New Gene Editing Tool, but it's really an improvement on CRISPR, which is a technology that we've talked about on the show. It's been a while. Um, but CRISPR uses Cas9 to make a snip in DNA and then have repairs happen. This new procedure allows there to be a time-based sequence to that so that if the gene editing needs to, you know, edit this and fix this and then this and then this, it is more sophisticated. Um, so that's pretty huge <laughs> and just that capability to to edit genes we've I, I gave a chapel talk uh, a couple weeks ago and just happened to talk about the vaccine and how it's not going to edit our dna or you know change our dna that's some disinformation that has been put out there uh, by some anti-vax groups and others that are wanting to you know instill fear in the united states population and others about the vaccine but it is, it builds on, you know, lots of technology having to do with the ways in which proteins and cells function, um, you know, an RNA and, and messenger RNA, just incredible, incredible stuff. Um, let's see. Here's one that we're not going to spend nearly enough time, but I, we mentioned this, um, a few weeks ago on the show. Timnit Gebru was on the Google, um, AI ethics team and another, leader at Google whose Twitter handle is is M Mitchell underscore AI wrote a Google Doc on February 5th called On the Firing of Dr. Timnit Gebru. And she herself was fired this last week from Google. And this is really bad. Um, I, the article <clears throat> that she wrote talks about how the fire the initial firing of um of uh, Timnit Gebru was, was terrible. Like if we can't figure out what's going on with education in Google, how, how do we figure out this? But this just does not seem wise. And when you have an ethics board, you know, and then somebody's publishing something independently, that's going to be, you know, could be perceived as critical of you. It just, it, it flies in the face of what you would think Google is and what they would stand for to just fire her and then to fire somebody else who's part of that same team, it, it just looks pretty bad. So I don't have any independent insight into this other than to say, I know it's a very important issue um, and it's something that we should be tracking and following. So maybe we'll, I'm sure we will have some tech analysts and others who are going to write some more about it. And maybe we can find some of those and talk about that next week. Yep. Sounds great. Okay. You want a geek of the week it? Yeah, I mentioned this earlier, but one of my favorite websites that's a kind of a rabbit hole, and I do utilize it occasionally for projects, uh, the New York Public Library has a wonderful digital uh, collections page. It's a million objects large, well, nearly a million objects large now, and they've been digitizing a lot of the things in their collection uh, really since the, internet's, uh, the Internet started, and a lot of it is freely downloadable. Um, it's usable in projects, um, and a lot of it is, you may not have any direct value for other than it's interesting. For example, they've got phone books going back uh, 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 decades and decades and decades and decades, um, but they do have uh, you know nearly a million objects now. Uh, if you are, for example, a, a history teacher, um, the reason why I need to look at this recently is that I'm working on a little side project that there I needed some images, uh, some high quality images about U.S. soldiers in World War One. I. I was able to find uh, some that were freely licensed um, in, in about 10 minutes that I could download high quality uh, uh, archival uh, quality versions of. So that's the New York Public Library digital collections page. Awesome. And my recommendation tonight is a podcast, one that I, in fact, just started today, thanks to the Vox podcast, uh, Today Explained, which I will listen to usually about once a week. This is a new series that Vox, uh, Vox has started called Land of the Giants. And so uh, this is um, just three episodes old, but um, the first one is really a deep dive into um, Amazon and Jeff Bezos. The second one is a dive into, uh, Netflix and then the, the, um, well, I guess, oh, well, these are the seasons. Okay. So I'm, I guess I'm in season three because the one I've started has been the Google Empire. Okay. So 
Sorry. Um, I didn't, I haven't gone back far enough, but, um, I listened to, uh, two of them, um, the Google, um, well, the Google Empire is the preview, but the search begins, uh, which is 40 minutes. And I listened to Chrome and the Android Wars. So it's historical, but really tracing how Google as a company, where they came from and how they've evolved and changed. Um, and season three, which is all about Google, is ongoing. So certainly timely as we talk about the tech correction and things that are happening in Australia and all this. There'll be some good analysis, I think, that'll come from that. But definitely recommend Vox for their podcasts and glad to be t- tuning into this new show. So, Dr. Neifer, when you're not here pontificating, where can folks connect with you? Well, I pontificate on on Twitter all the time at Tech Savvy Teach. I also pontificate for the Montana Digital Academy, montanadigitalacademy.org. And a final reminder Sunday, February 28th, is the last day of early bird pricing for the Northwest Council for Computer Education. We're actually, if you, you know, uh, I will be pontificating at that conference as well. So ncc.org slash conference 21. I think I'm doing five presentations this year, including a, a new one I'm really excited about called Advanced Chromebookology. And so uh, please go to ncc.org slash conference 2021. It's a very flexible conference. You can either do it live or access all the content uh, for 90 days after the conference is over with and we're real excited about it i think it's gonna be a great virtual event and join us this year online join us next year back in seattle washington for uh the the best uh uh ed tech conference that is not thirty thousand people so yeah there you go yeah and there's actually a number of those that are a little bit smaller that tend to be good yeah so i am w fryer on the twitters uh you can find lots of links to learn with me at westfriar.com slash after And this has been the EdTech Situation Room. We are a weekly Wednesday evening web show and podcast where we talk about the past week's technology news through an educational lens. We want to thank Peggy George for joining us live and invite anybody who can to join us live at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, and whatever that might correlate to in your neck of the woods. You can access the show notes for tonight's show on our episode, which will also have a small 32 kilobit MP3 and a 100-ish megabyte uh, video version, but you can always subscribe on YouTube. We encourage you to follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR, and you can also always go to our website, EdTechSR.com, where in addition to getting our episodes and links, you can link to our enormous Google Doc, which we've already referenced. That is at edtechsr.com slash links. So thank you so much. Until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe, uh, watch out for the malware, and uh, hopefully we'll find out how to identify if we've got this thing on our M1 Macs. I don't have an M1 Mac anymore, so maybe I'm okay. Problem, yeah, who knows? Good night. Good night. (laughs) 